I had planned just to teach three lessons on the resurrection, and I did. But when we talk about the resurrection of Christ, we're talking about a future event that could happen at any moment, or it may happen millennial, millenniums from now. We don't know. Not even the angel scripture says knows when, and even the son himself knows when the father will decide to bring back with him those who have died and bring about the end of the world, the ultimate judgment, and then heaven and its alternative hell. We don't know when that future event's going to be, but we always must be ready. But a question that comes up often is, well, what happens the moment you die? If the resurrection is not till the future, and we see a body lying there, if we get to see the body at all, that's clearly lost life, where does the soul or the spirit of that person go in that intervening time? That is a very legitimate question. In fact, it's legitimate many times simply because there's a great temptation to give a wrong answer. There's a very great temptation to give a wrong answer to that question. Uh, you may have heard every once in a while uh, when people are discussing uh, the death of a small child. Uh, a sad, grievous event. And it's hard to explain even why they died or how they could die, but to explain where their soul might have gone. And many very loving, well-intentioned people will say something to this effect. Well, God needed another angel. And when I've heard that, or I've read about people saying that, I appreciate the intention. But what an awful answer. Not biblical. The idea that God took the life of that child so that he might have an angel with him. The problem is when we don't know what the Bible teaches, we often can create some very awful answers to situations that we struggle to understand. I don't think anyone's ever said that maliciously, but it's a biblically malicious answer to give because what it says about God, and it simply is an answer spoken out of someone desperately trying to explain a situation, but they do not reference the Creator or His revealed Word about what that answer might be, and they concoct an answer in a desperate attempt to answer a situation that's difficult. So that's at least one reason why we need to biblically understand what happens the moment anyone dies, whether it be a small infant, even a child that dies at birth, or someone well in years that passes. We need to understand what the Bible says. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was sent to free who all their lifetime, Hebrews 2 verse 15, all their lifetime were fearful of death. Jesus himself talks about in John 11 verse 25, how that through him, though a person dies, they will live again. And he's talking about the resurrection. But still there's that intervening time. And Paul says in Philippians, I'm sorry, Philippians, not 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, to let no one move us concerning our knowledge of what happens in the future. So the question is, again, what happens one minute after you die? The biblical teaching on life in between death and the resurrection. Go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 13 through 18, because these questions concerning death are not new. And the church in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago struggled with what happens when a person dies and will they be resurrected? And they struggled with this understanding of death and resurrection. And how do these things all fit in together? Let's pick up chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, verse 13 through 18. And this is our primary source of biblical answer to this question about life after death. Verse 13, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, and who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The ultimate goal of this lesson is to encourage us, not to scare us to death but to encourage us based on having a, found, having a foundation of God's truth about what happens when we die. But first of all, we have to do some blasting. We have to do some blasting before we do some building. Whenever a new uh, athletic stadium or coliseum is being built, usually it's built on the same site as the old one. Well, what do they have to do first? Spend days putting dynamite in foundational locations and blast away. You cannot build the new building without blasting away the old. I remember in driver's training in high school, before they ever taught you how to drive the car, they made you watch videos of what happens when a car crashes and the people in the car are not belted. Uh, they had to do some blasting before they could build a good driver. So we're going to do that first by trying to blast away at wrong notions or wrong sources of an answer about death, and then we can build upon biblical teaching that we see right here in this passage and others. First of all, where there are no answers. There are some sources you just should not go to because they themselves will say, we don't have an answer to the question. There are no answers from doctors, scientists, philosophers, or morticians. Remember in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, where we just read, Paul first said this. He was doing some blasting. He said, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be un 
informed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Here he talks about there being a state of someone simply being uninformed. That is, they don't know what's going to happen. Well, many times people turn to people that are simply uninformed. That doesn't mean they're bad people or you should never go to them about anything. They just don't have the answers and they will stop you mid-sentence many times and say, I don't know. First of all, doctors. Uh, doctors, simply in their role, can only improve, improve or prolong life. Uh, doctors, they will offer medications, uh, physical therapy, surgery, uh, different treatment offer, uh, options. They're supposed to tell you the truth. Recently, I went into a doctor about my knee, trying to figure out how to get my knee better, and they offered all these different options. But I didn't even think to ask them, hey, what happens after you die? <laughs> By the way, what happens after you die? Because they don't have those answers. And they just say, Mr. Mulligan, that's not our area. Let's go back to your knee, and let's see what we can do. Uh, doctors do not have answers because they simply deal with those who are living, not with those who are dead. Uh, philosophers can only describe life. If you go to Barnes & Noble or online, there's an endless stream of books about life and how to live life or what's important in life. And a lot of good things said, a lot of bad things said, but a lot of uninformed things said about life. Philosophers, whether they be very educated people or people that were able to publish a book on Amazon, are simply talking about life as we know it. They might speculate about life after death, but usually they will say that. People like Deepak Chopra and a lot of books even about death, but really just speculating with lengthy words that are captivating as you listen to them or as you read them, but they're not informed words of authority based on what happens when a person dies. Philosophers can only describe life. A scientist can only examine life. Scientists look for patterns of life. They will look at life as we know it, and they'll try to make judgments about what we can expect from life. But scientists, if they're true to their profession, will say, we don't know how life began. We can't recreate that in the laboratory. And they also will say, if they're true to their profession, we don't know what happens after a person dies. That's out of our ability to examine. They simply look at things as they are. What's going on? What's going on? What can we repeat in the laboratory? Things like that to tell us about life. Fair enough. That's their area. They're dealing with life as we know it. Even morticians. Uh, they, they're, they're, they're handling death all the time. Multiple deaths. But all they can really do is put a body back together, either so an autopsy could be done to see how a body died, or they simply will present a dead body the best way it can be presented so if the family sees it, it kind of looks like what the person used to look like or how they would like them to be seen. Uh, morticians are just as limited as every other profession. But they are the most familiar with death, if you think about it. But they still have no answer. So, we don't want to go to wrong areas and waste our time. Or people that don't specialize in death. Here's another area of blasting. There's a problem of suspect answers. 
Suspect answers come from religious traditions. Usually in the area of religion, people have, throughout history, tried to answer questions in a way that the Bible does not answer them. Because they want to try to answer this problem. And a lot of times it is because of children that have died. And within certain predominant religions, they struggle with because of some of their beliefs with how to handle children that have died or unbaptized people that have died. And they don't want to hurt someone's feelings or they want to try to way to uh, understand a situation. So traditions have been created. But those traditions do not represent biblical truth. Again, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. In certain cases, there is no hope. And we'll talk about those cases later on. But to try to create answers or to go to things outside of the Bible and simply say, well, that's our religious tradition. That's simply providing people no hope. <laughs> but you're trying to give them something that sounds like it will make them feel better. But it really gives them no hope. Let's look at some examples of those. And these examples are not to try to be critical of a certain religion. We're not trying to be critical of the people of that religion. But we are trying to be critical of the idea simply because the idea is not represented in Scripture. In fact, these churches many times will be the first to say that. Because some churches that have ideas about what happens when you die believe that, well, our church tradition, along with the Bible, is the authority. Again, they will be the first to say that. Well, we don't use just the Bible. We have a long tradition of what our church fathers have taught, and those are the things that shape our understanding of death. Well, let's look at some of those ideas. Here's some example of suspect answers. And by suspect, I simply mean they don't have enough credibility. My car mechanic uh, comes to me after I walk there to pick up my car, and he says, John, I think you're little suspect. He's not saying it's dead. He's not saying it's not there. He's simply saying, I'm hearing or I'm smelling things or I'm seeing things that don't look, sound, or feel right. And we might need to come back for another appointment. I never like to hear that, where they find things I didn't have a problem with. But they will usually say, well, it's suspect. We need to take a closer look. I need more time with it. Well, here's some suspect answers, things that need a closer look and that don't have the authority they need. First of all, the idea of purgatory. Purgatory is the Catholic belief that people that have died as a Catholic needed some extra cleansing, if you will. And I'm trying to represent the view as best I understand it. Uh, Thomas comes from a Catholic background. He might refine some of these ideas as far as the way Catholics see it. And sometimes Catholics see these things differently. But it's the idea that you go to this period of um, relative suffering for a while to cleanse you if you have not lived a faithful life as a Catholic. And people can pray for you. Uh, maybe if you were lost altogether, people could pray you out of purgatory. It's kind of like a lighter version of hell, though Catholic, Catholics usually will not describe it that way or, or they're theologians. But the Bible does not entertain this idea of purgatory 
purgatory where you go there as a temporary state of light suffering and someone can pray you out of that condition. That is just the opposite. Luke 16, uh, the rich man who was in this state of torment or agony, he wanted Abraham to go tell his brothers uh, about this and, and he wanted something to be done while he was in this state of purgatory too. And, and basically there's nothing that could be done. He could not have his torment minimized by something someone else does outside of that state of torment or agony after he died. So purgatory goes in the face of Scripture, but it was an attempt to try to explain what will happen to those that didn't die in a faithful state. The idea of limbo, even though Catholic teaching today doesn't really espouse limbo, they did 15 years ago, but they kind of took it off the books the idea that there's some waiting place right on the edge of heaven and hell that you could be for a temporary amount of time. Uh, I think it was recognized, boy, that's really stretching it as far as even our tradition. And they kind of took that off the books, but a lot of people, if you're older, you'll have heard the uh, term limbo. It comes from the Latin word limbus. It's the idea of this waiting place right between heaven or hell. Uh, annihilism is the idea of some religions that those who die having rejected God, they'll just be snuffed out of existence immediately. That their soul will just go to be destroyed, and that's it. Just like, like an atom bomb touches their soul, and boom, they're gone. That's the idea of some religious teachings as far as what happens with those who die who have rejected God. Again, that's not a biblical idea. It's just an idea to try to explain what happens to those rejected God upon death, trying to avoid mainly the idea that they go to hell, which is an awful thought. Or they go to any place where they might suffer. Annihilism is the idea that, well, they just are snuffed out, and that's the end, as if that's comforting. I guess it could be more than a state of agony or hell itself, but it's still not a Bible answer. There's also this idea that I alluded to at the beginning of the lesson of angelic transition. I didn't have a formal description, but it's the idea that we turn into angels upon death. And it's kind of behind that idea of someone saying after a child has died, well, God needed another angel. Some people believe that we all become angels upon death and that we're, they're flying around, we all get wings, and oh, it's a wonderful life. You know that line, when a person dies and an angel gets his wings and things like that. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, these are flowery, wonderful thoughts because death is such an awful thought. And I don't blame anyone, even religions, for trying to struggle to lighten up such a heavy subject. But we don't want to give wrong answers. Paul again says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like those who have no hope. There are some who have no hope. And there are those that grieve over those that have no hope. That's what Paul is alluding to. He's also alluding to the fact that some are uninformed. We have to eliminate having to grieve, and we have to eliminate for those who have no hope, and we have to eliminate the idea of being uninformed. So we've done our blasting. Let's do some building. Solid answers, solid answers always come from Scripture. When you hear this, and you hear that, and this religious person says this, or you read this in some book, you always have to weigh them. Well, what does Scripture say? 
Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is inspired of God. It was profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction in righteousness that the man of God might be fully developed. Scripture is always our source and our answer. And with this subject, we have a lot of answer right here in one place. Let's take a look at what we're told here in this place. I see four solid answers we'll talk upon briefly. I put some other scriptures to reference. But I want to first explore this one idea that your soul returns to God at death. Your soul doesn't get zapped where you don't exist at all. But your soul returns to God in either a good way or a bad way. Paul here talks about the good way. He's talking to believers who are putting their faith and trust in Christ. He talks about in verse 18, encourage one another with these words. But here he alludes to exactly what happens to a person when they die. Verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe, this is key now, that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we, will, we tell you that all who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not, or I'm sorry, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. In verse 14 and 15, Paul talks about those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But he talks about when Christ returns, he's going to bring those people with him. Those he will later describe as having fallen asleep in the Lord. First of all, that implies that just because a person has died and their body appears lifeless, it does not mean the life of that person has ended. Because we are dual-natured as human beings, our physical life does end. And that's why the body looks the way it does at death. The life is left. But a soul of a person, the Bible teaches we have this soul or spirit that lives on, that soul or spirit goes on to be with God. The writer of Ecclesiastes talked about our body returns to the dust from which it came, chapter 12, verse 7. But the soul returns to God who gave it. And that is confirmed in other places. Stephen, when he's being killed for proclaiming Christ, right upon the last rock that was being hurled at him, he said, he said Lord Jesus, what? Receive my spirit. His understanding, based on what he'd been taught from the apostles, and what he had grown up as a Jewish man believing, is that when you die, your spirit or soul returns to God. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 through 24, the Apostle Paul talks about he desires to go on to be with Christ. Talking about his death, but he says, it's better for you that I keep on living on in the body. But he recognized he was facing a trial before a Roman Caesar. And his life might well end in death. So he said, my, life, my desire is to go on to be with Christ. And that is before the resurrection. His understanding as someone who God directly spoke to was, upon death, his spirit would go on to be with Jesus. And that's exactly what this text confirms at all. When you see a pattern of biblical teaching, you can hold tightly to that. Our soul goes on to be with God at death. Death for the believer is described as sleep. Now, it doesn't literally mean you're sleeping. 
But usually if a body dies or a person dies under normal circumstances and the life is simply taken out of the body, that body will appear as someone sleeping. I remember as a young child going to open casket funerals. And as I said in earlier lessons, walking by, the person looked like they were at rest. They didn't look the same as I remember them, but they looked about the best they could look in those circumstances, but they looked in a state of rest, if you will. And that's how people saw people who had died under normal settings. So Paul is using accommodative language when he talks about those who have fallen asleep. Notice he does it three times. Verse 13, he talks about those who sleep in death. Verse 14, those who have fallen asleep in him. Uh, and then uh, verse 15, not perceive those who have fallen asleep. That's the same way of saying they've died. But it's also a comforting way of describing their death. They've fallen asleep. That phrase is never used of non-believers or those who have rejected God. It is not used in the Bible, that is, they've fallen asleep of those who have rejected God. Only of those who have been obedient to God in their life. Is this description of sleep. Paul uses it also in 1 Corinthians 15 where he talks about the resurrection. He says, for we shall not all sleep, but in the twinkling of an eye we shall be changed. So sleep is the description of the life of someone who's put their trust in God and been faithful to him in their life. That's the biblical answer. Two more. And this is the difficult part. It's difficult because it touches people we know who died in a state of not professing any type of obedience towards God or desire to follow him. Their, their actions indicated that. And, Maybe when you try to talk to them about Jesus, they just kind of put their hand up figuratively or literally, and I don't want to hear it, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. And they died in that state. And this is the state that most people struggle, struggle about. And, and that's why so many traditions were invented to try to explain what happened to those who died in a rebellious state. How do we explain their existence right after they died? What do you, what do you say at the funeral service to someone? whose family member is in that state and you don't know where they were with the Lord, or you kind of do know. They, they, they weren't trying to follow him and they told you that. It is perhaps the most difficult question. Luke 16 talks about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man there is someone who lived in rebellion to God. They die along with Lazarus. He died too. But in that text, it describes that person in a state of torment or agony. There's no way to spin that as being positive. Or there's nothing to say, well, they only were there 15 minutes. And they suffered enough, and now they're out. That's Purgatory's idea. All I know is it's the state I don't want to be in. And some have asked me, John, how do you answer that question to someone whose family member died and they weren't in any way faithful to the Lord, the one who died? I don't run to Luke 16 and say, well, here's, here, here's where I think they went. And they're suffering now. You don't do that. We are not the judge. Human beings do not determine where someone goes after they die. 
So don't ever put yourself in that position. But usually here's what I would say. When they ask, where, where do you think they are? I first say, that's not my place to say, I don't know. And only God knows. But I know we have a God of grace and compassion, and He will do the right thing with your relative. God will do the right thing with your relative. And I don't know what that is. And sometimes I'll add, and God will be more just and fair than I would be. I just don't know what to tell you. That's a correct and fair answer. Don't try to give an answer. Well, God needed another angel or, or this. Oh, I just know he must be the Lord. He's in a better place. How do you know that? That's another phrase we need to try to eliminate. If we know someone dies in the Lord and we know they're faithful to God, we can say, like Paul said, I'm sure they're with Jesus. They were faithful to God. They put their faith and trust in Him. But when we don't know, don't try to say, well, I think they're in a better place. What does that mean? That's not a biblical place, a better place. That's just us trying to say something good, but we don't know. Just say, I don't know. But Abraham, Abraham declared in Genesis 18, I believe it's verse 22, he says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Yes. Our God's not looking to send anyone to hell. Just say, our God will do what's right by your sister. Or God will do what's right by your brother or your spouse. I know he will. And I found that everyone I give that answer to is satisfied. But for those who are believers, that's where the bulk of Scripture goes. Death is described as rest for those who've obeyed God. I want to end with one verse and then some quick applications for some very difficult questions. In Revelation chapter 14, Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, here's what's said about those who die in a state of faithfulness to God. John received this revelation, and he says this. He says, Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Let me just read that again. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will what? Rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. First of all, the Scripture tells us that the soul lives on. They've died, but the soul is with God. In and in a state of rest, which is the equivalent of those who are asleep in Jesus. It is a state of immediate comfort for all those who die in a state of having put their trust and their obedience in the Lord. The moment they die, they're in a state of comfort with the Lord. Luke 16 is described as being by Abraham's side for Lazarus. It's always presented as a state of comfort. 
Isaiah chapter 57, verse 2. In, even in the Old Covenant. You can write that down if you're taking notes. Isaiah 57, verse 2. It says, Those who walk uprightly enter peace. They will find rest as they lie in death. Let me just read that again. Isaiah 57, 2. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They will find rest as they lie in death. That's where I want to be. I'm only counting on about 20 to 25 more years. My life may not last until I get home. But I want to plan to be at rest when I die. And wait for the resurrection of my soul to be joined with a new body. That's where our hope is. Four quick personal considerations and we're done. Because people ask these questions. First of all, burial or cremation does not matter. Burial or cremation does not matter. When your body is gone, dies in a fire or gets buried in a grave, that body is done with. It's your soul that goes on to be with God that will be united with a brand new body, which is what Scripture over and over again teaches, especially 1 Corinthians 15 and John 11. Don't worry about where to put your remains. You make the choice, whatever you're comfortable with. Second, you will likely know your eternal destiny the moment you die. It's either you will go into an immediate state of comfort or a state of torment. People will go one or two places. There's no in-between place. It's one or the other. And if you're faithful to the Lord, you'll immediately recognize this state of rest and comfort till the resurrection. Third, prepare for death by taking it seriously. Sometimes we do. You might have a do not resuscitate order by what happens if you're really injured or really sick. What do the doctors do? And someone has told you, you need to write, what conditions do they unplug? What conditions do they keep you plugged? I'll just put it like that. We take that seriously. We don't want a relative have, keeping us alive for years, maybe, when there's nothing left. Uh, financial planners, they don't mind talking about death. Well, when you die, uh, here, here's what you want with your money and you want to spend They'll talk about death because they have a financial interest in that. It's interesting. Certain people have no problem talking about death because there's something in it for them. Um, so we do take it seriously at other times. We have a will written to make sure certain people get our money and certain people don't. We need to take death seriously in other ways. How we prepare for our own death, where we will be, and not worry so much about where our money will be or our property, or, or I want this to go to little Susie, uh, what's on her curio cabinet. Take care of yourself where you will be. Don't worry about your collectibles. It probably will go a place where you don't want them to go. Worry about yourself and those you love and share with them the gospel. Prepare for death by taking it seriously. And fourth, the only way to live is being prepared to die. If you're not prepared to die, be scared every day. Be scared of it more than COVID, anything. If 
If you're not prepared to die, be scared to death of dying. Because you don't know where you're going to be, and if you're in rebellion to God, there's nothing I can point to in Scripture. The best I can say is God will do the right thing. But the right thing may not be something that you want or someone else wants. But when you give your life to Jesus Christ in full obedience, when you trust and obey because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, when you give your life fully to God, that frees you to live. Even though you might have got a cancer diagnosis or you might have trouble in both hips or, or you can't breathe right, you know you're prepared to go. Your body's telling you every day that you're on borrowed time perhaps or your time is short. But you're still prepared to go. You can live with daily joy. You can live with reassurance. You can... Feel okay going to sleep at night? There's some people that are scared to go to sleep because they don't know if they will rise again. What an awful way to live your latter years or any years of your life. But put your faith and trust in Jesus. John said, whoever has this hope purifies themselves. Continue to live a godly, sanctified life, knowing that it is by grace you're saved, though, and not of yourself. No, it's through Jesus that you will die and go to a place of comfort and ultimately be resurrected to live with God forever in heaven. When you embrace that truth, for by grace you are saved, that not of yourselves is the gift of God. You now truly live. You now truly live. As the great song goes that Nathaniel led, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Exactly, Austin. I don't know how you face tomorrow without any hope in Jesus Christ. I'd be scared to death to leave the house if you watch the news. God never intended for us to live that way. And start today in your life, either giving yourself to full obedience and trusting in the Lord or sharing with someone that needs to hear the message or whatever you know you need to do, do it so you can live. It's in your best interest to not avoid this situation of death, but to embrace it and do the right thing, just like we do with financial planning and all those other things. Let's live as God wants us to live. We're going to sing a song now to encourage us to walk with God, to be faithful to Him. He freed us from the bondage of death, from that in shacklement of fearing what's going to happen tomorrow. And let's live fully as God intends for us to live till the day that he takes us home. And what a glorious day that will be. As I like to say, the best things are yet to come in your life when you trust in God. The best is yet to come. There is rest upon death, then heaven forever. Could it get any better? No. Put your everything, put everything you have in the hands of Jesus, safe in the arms of Jesus, the old hymn says.